the story of, of Noah, of the flood, the ark, this is one of the most well-known Bible stories probably. And especially to children. This is, this is like the go-to passage for children's Sunday school. If you say, you know, for teachers, if say, I need a sub today. And like, just do whatever you want. You know, this is one of the passages, is it? Passages that may come to mind. All right, let's, let's talk about Noah and the, and the ark. And so flannel graph was made for this kind of story. Um, I mean, I, there, I, I just from my own experience, I, I don't have any data to back me up on this, but I would say there's probably more children's books that have been written about this Bible passage than any other Bible passage and, and uh, illustrated accordingly. There are coloring books and there are, there are toy sets and there are... Uh, sing-along uh, CDs, and there are VeggieTales videos, and and so on, on and on. And the depictions are generally kind of the same, the way that it's illustrated. It's this jolly old man and these smiling animals, you know, hanging out for the ark, and, you know, the sun's shining, and there's these puffy white clouds, and there's a rainbow, and that's kind of the image that we we see when we think of of the ark. It's it, we're, we're sort of, children are sort of implicitly taught that this is, um, it's just a cute story about a floating petting zoo, basically. And that's kind of how it's portrayed. They had that picture that, that last picture, Luke, if you can throw it up there, at the, at the Ark Encounter, I thought this was, that's kind of a, a, a neat part of it. They, they had this room, they called it the fairy tale room or something like that, but they had a whole wall of all of the children's books of that are showing basically that image and all of these little toy sets and video uh, cases and stuff. Just and they're showing this is one of the uh, the dangers of of treating these stories in the scripture. It, we we can can kind of un, uh, maybe not intentionally, but we can teach that it sounds just like a fairy tale. And so I thought that was that was helpful. So that's one one way that we we come to the ark. And maybe the other extreme. Uh, way of, of coming to this passage is some of us, some who know this story, and particularly maybe unbelievers who are familiar with the story, or, or we, we, we can see this, and, and even believers, that the flood, we see in the flood this angry, vengeful God who is, who just arbitrarily hates and destroys people. And he's wiping out the world. I mean, we read the text, and you see this language, and this is maybe the image, and so God's portrayed kind of like a a petulant child who's got a magnifying glass on a sunny day and he's just you know, looking for ants to destroy. And, uh, and we, can, we can kind of get this image of God like that. He's this angry, vindictive, vengeful God. Both of those postures are wrong. And, and the, the flood, it's, it's not just a cute story about uh, sunny skies and rainbows and happy animals. And real people died. Scores of dead bodies Real sin was punished in a real flood. At the same time, though, the flood, it's not just this grim story about fury and death. Even though God is executing judgment on sin and sinners, He's he's also showing extravagant grace to sinners. Undeserved grace. It's salvation through judgment. But but it's God's grace, not His wrath, that gets the last word. And, and that's something I want us to see really clearly this morning. So as we're going to see this salvation through judgment uh, episode it, with Noah, it's part of a bigger story. This is not the whole story. So Noah escapes death and the flood by being in the ark, but he could not escape the corruption in his own heart. 
And so there, there needed to be this, there needed to be another Noah story that didn't end in sin or curses like this one. One that would conclude with perfect obedience and a, and a perfect salvation through judgment and, and, and a, a guarantee of a perfect new creation never to be corrupted again. It's, it's, it's a beautiful, powerful story of salvation, but it still, it leaves us wanting. It leaves us looking for more, which is pointing to. And we're going to see that at the end. So this morning we come, you saw it, and you've, we've, we've been in Genesis now for several months, and we've talked about this, and right there in verse 9, you see that expression, these are the generations of Noah, and, and if you've been with us along the way, you, you know this is, this is indicating this third major section then in, in the book of Genesis. There are these ten toledotes, that's a Hebrew word for that expression, these are the generations, and so this is the third of those, it begins in verse 9, and this is, uh, this is one of the longer ones, and it goes all the way through, in, in diverse, uh, through chapter 9. And so there are these ten Toledotes in Genesis, they make up sort of the bone structure of the book. And this particular one, as I said, is long, but it's just masterfully written. And, and what we're going to see, uh, we'll talk probably more about this next week, but there's, I'm going to use a big fancy um, uh, Hebrew exegesis word here, but we, it's, it's chiastic in structure. Have you ever heard of chiasm when we're talking about studying the Bible or in other literature as well? But what we're meaning at chiasm, we're just saying it's, it's, it's like it's divided in two. There are these two halves to the narrative, and they provide a mirror image of one another. So I'll, I'll try to display this more next time, but the second half is, again, is a mirror image of the first. So everything's kind of in reverse. So the first half is describing the beginning and the rise of the flood, which essentially amounts to decreation. Everything's being wiped out and being destroyed. So we have the rise of the flood, decreation, and the second half, it's like everything in reverse. It describes the receding of the flood and the end of the flood, which is what we're going to call recreation, where the earth is filled again. So at the very, at the very center of that chiastic structure, of that, those halves, there, there are these opening words of chapter 8, and the last words that we read just a moment ago, but God remembered Noah. That's not coincidental. The, the author, Moses, who is inspired by God, God's the ultimate author, but he's, he's pointing us. This is, this is the crux of the passage. He's pointing, this is what it's about. It's not about art construction techniques and cubit standards of measurement. It's not about dinosaurs and what a day in the life of Noah was like. Uh, those are fine things to consider, and we could talk about geology and, and apologetics approach to, to the flood and, and defending the, the literal account in a universal flood. That's not, I don't think that, those are fine and they have their place, but that we can talk about those things and miss the point. You can talk about them and not miss the point, but for our sake, I want us to stick with what is being presented here. And what he's saying, this is, this is about God. God remembering Noah, God remembering, God keeping covenant, God, uh, per, God preserving, God saving through judgment. This is what God is doing. And so, I'm going to make four statements that help us really get that point and, and see how it develops in this first half of, of this section of Genesis. And so, four statements. The first one is this, in verses 9 and 10, is that the light of salvation is inextinguishable. 
The light of salvation is inextinguishable. And so this is a truth that runs throughout the storyline of Scripture. It's not just here. As was promised in Genesis 3.15, remember, the seed of the serpent is going to rage against the seed of the woman. And the, the seed of the woman is the one from whom the, the Messiah will come, the one who will come and crush the head of the serpent. And so that there's this, there's this battle going on, but God would protect and, re, and would preserve the promise and hope of, of that even in the darkest of hours. And that's what we've already seen, and that's what we're going to continue to see. And so the way this looks in this particular part <coughs> seen from God's story, it's that the world has become thoroughly and universally and, and grotesquely and demonically wicked. It's just so dark, spiritual darkness covering the earth, immorality, violence, demonism, just godlessness. It completely has saturated the soil of humanity. And so last time, a couple weeks ago, uh, we, we looked at these weighty words describing the world at this time. Look back in chapter 6 with me at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Again, those words, every, only, <coughs> continually. And then see God's response, verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And if you stop at verse 7, you think, okay, it's over. <laughs> like this could be the last verse of the Bible. I mean, this could be it, and we would never know it. The, the light and hope of salvation, humanly speaking, it's about to be snuffed out, and it, the serpent wins. That's what it seems like. But then you get to verse 8. But, that little, that adversity of it, just powerful. But, Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. It looked like sin won. It looked like Satan had the upper hand. It looked like darkness was going to defeat the light. But no, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of this dark, dark, dark world, there was, there was this light that was still burning by God's grace. There was one, as we see in verse 9, righteous man, blameless in his generation, who walked with God. Now as we said last time we were in, in Genesis 6, here, the, the, the story of Noah and the flood, it's not about a good man saving the day. That's not the story. It's about God keeping His promise. It's about God preserving the seed of the woman. God showing sovereign grace to Noah to keep the hope of salvation alive. And so everything that's said about Noah here in verse 9 and throughout this passage, it flows from this truth that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah is an object of God's grace. That's foundational. And so that sovereign grace of God, though, it shaped his life radically. From that grace flowed a life of obedience and faithfulness to God and righteousness and blamelessness. And so look at how he's described in verse 9. He's a, he was a righteous man. This has to do with his standing before God. He is, he's in a right relationship with God, again, opposed, as opposed to everybody else on the world at this time. 
He's righteous because what? Because he believed God. Hebrews 11.7 makes this very clear that, that this, this righteousness came from faith. <coughs> through faith. Like Abraham who would come after him, who believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness, Noah also believed. So he's righteous. Second, he's a blameless. He was blameless in his generation. Doesn't mean he was sinless, like he did nothing wrong. He was perfect. That no, Noah was a sinner like everybody else. We emphasized that last time. Noah needed a savior like everybody else. Noah needed grace like everybody else. But as Noah received grace from the Lord, his conduct became blameless despite his evil context. And so he his life looked very different from the world around him. He wasn't like everybody else in the sense of just how he lived and how he thought and how he talked. He was still, he was a sinner in need of grace, but he, he was a different life. The, the demonized culture, it didn't, it didn't divert his eyes away from the Lord. It didn't pervert him. It didn't, and it could not indict him. That's the idea of blamelessness. They, he walked in integrity. They couldn't accuse him. So, against his dark backdrop, spiritually dark backdrop of that pre-flood world, there's this, one, there's this one light shining. Now, according to, also according to 2 Peter 2.5, <clears throat> we also know that Noah was a herald of righteousness. That's how Peter talks about him. A herald, a preacher of righteousness in his own day. He's warning of judgment to come. He's calling people to turn to the Lord. And so again, Noah's evidencing God's grace in his life through this, through, through this remarkable courage in the face of what would have been just incredible opposition. As this whole world is corrupt and violent and warring against God and demonized. And here he is preaching righteousness. He stood as this antithesis to his whole generation. That's the image we get. And and also the third, he, he walked with God. We've seen that expression already. We saw it explicitly with Enoch. We, we saw it, it pictured with Adam before the fall. But like Enoch, by God's grace, Noah's, Noah's life revolved around his relationship with God and his communion with the Lord. There was this living, vital, vibrant intimate relationship with the living God. That's the idea of this expression. He walked with God. We don't know exactly all of that looked like, but this is, this is the way it's described. He had a life who, who, the, uh, that, that had the aroma of being in the presence of God, we could say. I heard J.I. Packer talk about sitting under the preaching and the ministry of uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones for a season. And the way he described uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones there was, he said this, very simply, there was much about God with him. There was much about God with him. Um, and, and, and Noah was a person of whom that could be said. There was much about God with him. Don't, 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 and don't picture Noah having this kind of carefree, uh, <coughs> easy life of walking with God like it's this, uh, you know, lifelong retreat in the mountains and just uh, prayer walks and stuff like that. And this is just amazing. And singing in the woods as I walk and pick uh, blackberries, wild blackberries. That's not it. He, he, is, he is right in the middle of the, uh, of the most hostile environment you could possibly imagine. It, it, was, it was in the midst of this opposition, this hostility, this brutality and immorality... And demonic activity that he found grace from God. 
and became a man whose heart and mind were set on the living God and he walked with God. And what is that communicating to us? It's saying the promise will not be extinguished. God's grace found him and here is this one who is walking with God. Last thing we see of verse 10 and evidence of this reality that the light of salvation will not be extinguished is that he was a father. He was a father. Verse 10, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so we're going to see in a few weeks that one of these sons is going to be under a curse, or really his grandson. And, and, but I want you to see, what I want you to see now is that the seed of the woman, that, like God promised, will be preserved. There will be offspring. The, the seed of the serpent will continue after Noah. Yes, there's going to continue to be sin and, and, and the curse is going to go on. But so will the seed of the woman. Hope is alive. It is. So that's the first thing we see here. As we get to the kind of the essence of what this story is really about. Uh, not happy animals and not doom and gloom. It's a, the, the light of, the, of salvation is inextinguishable. Now, I realize we know how the story ends. We know what's coming. We know about the rainbow. We know what's happening afterwards. And we have all of this, the rest of our Bibles to see this unfolding. And we know where, where we're going. But we're supposed to feel this tension. The, the drama of this. That humanity, and we could say God's promises, seem to be on the brink of annihilation, of extinction here. So, so thoroughly evil so thoroughly broken, filled with satanic influence, seed of the serpents, winning the day. But there's this one man, one man, Noah. So in a sense we could say, no Noah, no Jesus. Promise is done. But, but there is this one man, Noah. So in the midst of this dark, depraved, demonized world, God's promise is intact. God's grace found, changed, preserved Noah, and from him one day would come the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Martin Luther commented on, on, the, on this, commenting on this passage, and I, I just think it's a, a, a good observation. He said this, More than one miracle was probably necessary to prevent the ungodly from surrounding Noah and killing him. Now you think about the world in which he's living, preaching righteousness, building this ridiculous uh, thing, and whatchamacallit, in the, you know, in the middle of all of this evil, godless, demonic, demon-filled world. That had to be. God was preserving him. God was keeping his life intact. I mean, you think of even in Jesus' life, when the crowds part as they're about to stone him to death. It, it's not his time. He's to die on the cross. And this is not Noah's time. And God's preserving him. The light of salvation is inextinguishable. God's promise will come to completion. And so, God preserved him. He preserved his plan. What a powerful... Again, we need to come back here often. But think of the original hearers, the original recipients of this word. The Israelites coming out of Egypt, Moses, and into the wilderness. And what a powerful word to them of God's uh, the, the God's salvation God's promises are never to be extinguished his salvation will will come to pass his deliverance will be 
final, and, and nothing can thwart his plans. That's a powerful word for them and for us. All right, second statement. So the light of salvation is inextinguishable. Secondly, the need for salvation is total. The need for salvation is total. Now we have another description of the world in verses 11 and 12. It's repeating again how corrupt the earth has become. But look at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And verse 12, and God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now we've already said a lot about the corruption of the pre-flood world last time and even in the first point. Um, already in this message, but one emphasis I want to point out here uh, that's particularly in this, in, this, in this passage is that they were filled with violence. Filled with violence. I know we hear violence, that's such a common word, it can be kind of muted for us, but listen to how the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament, uh, uh, how, it, how it defines this word in this context. The Hebrew word, here that's used for violence. They they define it this way. The cold-blooded and unscrupulous infringement of the personal rights of others motivated by greed and hate and often making use of physical violence and brutality. That's a mouthful, I realize. But that's what the earth was filled with. Cold-blooded brutality. Consciousless trampling on the rights of other peoples, motivated by greed and hatred. Using brutality and violence to accomplish selfish ends. That's the world. And it's not just present. It is full of that. This is an awful, awful picture. Violence, brutality, total corruption. And what is God saying to Noah here? What does He say? I see it. I see it. I know it. It looks like it's all out of control. It may seem like I've lost control. I have not. I see it. I know it. And I'm going to act. That's what God's communicating here to Noah. And, 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 and so he states again what he's going to do. Verse 13. This is what he follows up immediately. God said to Noah, I have determined. I see it. And I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And so we see his determination to judge. But notice what he does. He tells Noah this. He didn't have to tell him anything. I know we read it and we say, oh, of course he does. No, he doesn't have to tell Noah what's happening and why. Just do it. But here's Noah and he hears this sobering message and he lays hold of it by faith. Hebrews eleven seven. So the, the, but what we see, the need for salvation, it's not the need for a little adjustment, a slight course correction. No, it is salvation must come through judgment. It must. Humanity will be wiped out, except for Noah and his family. But the need for salvation is total. It's total. And Noah isn't kept alive because he doesn't need salvation. That's not it. It's not because he's deserving. It's because of God's grace. He's the human instrument of salvation in a sense, but he's also also the recipient of it. And so, so the light of salvation is inextinguishable. The need for salvation is total. Thirdly, the provision of salvation is from above. It's from God. So we see God's determination not just to wipe out humanity, but we see His determination to save 
It's salvation through judgment. Verse 14 and following here. So Noman, excuse me, Noah, he's the, he's a human instrument of, of salvation in the sense that he's going to build the physical vessel of salvation, the ark. And so God's going to use him and his obedience and his faithfulness to, to build this vessel. But salvation, it's, it's of the Lord. It's a God-provided plan. God's determining to do this and, and what's going to happen. In other words, God didn't say to, 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 to Noah, you know what, I have this rough concept in my mind. I'm thinking about flooding the earth, but, but maybe you could come up with some kind of, I don't know what it would be, but something that you could go into and, and that you could survive this, this worldwide flood, disaster, something that floats maybe, uh, submarine, I don't know, just go figure it out and build it. That's not what we have. No, no, God doesn't leave it all up to Noah and his creativity. And he, he's not going to entrust the vessel of salvation to human ingenuity. This is his doing. No, God gave him the specs. And so that it's not to say that Noah didn't use his mind in this process. And certainly he did. And he was a brilliant man and, and came up with all kinds of contraptions, I'm sure, to, to, to make this construction process happen. Is it the blend of divine revelation and the mind of a, a divine image bearer? Uh, but the biblical record, as you read through this account, the, the emphasis is on God's provision of the ark. Noah is obediently building, yes, and he's doing all that God commanded him to do. God's saying, do it this way. Noah says, by God's grace, yes, I'll do it. And he does it that way. But it's God directing. God's the superintendent here of this whole thing. It's God providing the means of salvation. And God's not taking chances. He says, this is how you'll build it. Verse 14, again, make yourself an oak of, uh, an ark of gopher wood. Now, we, we don't know what gopher wood is. Most think maybe it was cypress. It's a different name. Make, ar- or make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and outside with pitch. Then we get the dimensions of the ark and, and so on and on. And so, so, but what? 14, 15, 16, three verses. That's all we have. I mean, that's all the instruction that's recorded for us in terms of the construction of the ark. Now, I'm confident God revealed to Noah other details about the construction. Again, that's the emphasis is Noah's just doing what God says to do. But what's recorded for us is just three verses. Now, I know we got so many questions. <laughs> And we want, we want the Bible to give us all of these, these answers, but it's silent. About food storage and about uh, you know, what the living quarters were like and how did they deal with the manure. And just think about that. All of that food for all of that time, and that's disgusting. But they, I'm sure there was some kind of way of dealing with it, but we're not told any of that. We, we, I mean, this is one of the, I think, I thought was a helpful aspect of when you go, when we went to the, Ark Encounter exhibit, one of the first boards you see as you walk into the Ark is they, 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 they have essentially what's a disclaimer. And they're just acknowledging we are using great artistic license here. And, and we are trying to come up with what this might have been like. 
uh, because the Bibli- they acknowledge the biblical record is, is slim in terms of knowing exactly what happened. So they're just saying this is, this is, they're making a plausible case. This is what it could have been like. It may have been a different way. This may be how they handled the manure. This may have been handled this way. So they're just showing you this is, these are, this is one idea of what it might have been like just to show the plausibility of the biblical record. And so, but again, that, that, but note what I do want you, just the dimensions of the ark. They truly are staggering. Uh, again, that was the, I thought, the great thing about just being outside of the ark when you go up there, just to see what this would have been like. Um, and so it, a cubit, as you, I know that we don't measure things by cubits, but a cubit is the distance from your elbow to, the long, to your longest finger there. And so I realize that's different for us. I don't mean that they're out there on the ark, you know, doing this thing. I mean, they had measuring devices, but that, that was kind of the standard of measurement. And so there were different cubit dimensions for different uh, parts of the world, obviously different body sizes and stuff, but somewhere between 17 and a half, 20 and a half, 20 and a half inches. So, so you're looking at an arc that was 450 to 500 feet long, um, uh, one and a half football fields, uh, to give you some sense, 75 to 80 feet, 85 feet wide, 45 to 50 feet high, about a four-story building, three decks, uh, God tells us that much, and so probably over 100,000 square foot of floor space. I'm not figuring these calculations. This is what I'm reading here. Um, over over 1.4 million cubic feet of storage. Uh, so there's plenty. It's plenty large. And that's another thing that they're trying to show at the end. It, it, it's, not, it's not unreasonable. This is plausible. That, 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 and so... There's plenty of room for animals on the ark. Now, we're probably young animals, so don't picture a full-size elephant, but probably a baby elephant, possibly. We know. Again, we're not told. And they're kinds of animals. So it's not all varieties. So it's not, you weren't, there weren't chihuahuas on the ark. There, were, there was a dog. There were two dogs on the ark. And uh, so not all the different breeds and that kind of thing. And so, so some of those things in mind, just, it, but it's still, it's massive. And it's not a ship per se, it's an ark. Um, it, ark's an interesting term. Uh, you, it, it's used in Exodus 2 to describe the little floating vessel, the basket essentially, that Moses was put in to be protected from Pharaoh when he was wiping out the uh, newborns. And so, so there's this interesting connection. This little vessel that was used to carry Moses uh, and, and that, who would become this human instrument, instrument of salvation for the people of God here, this massive vessel is carrying Noah, who's this human instrument of salvation for his people. And so just an interesting connection there. But essentially what God provides through Noah is this floating barge. It's just this big, blocky barge. Blocky is not a word, but you get the picture. Its sole purpose is just designed to ride out the flood. Um, without any kind of direction. There's no propulsion system. There's no rudder, anything like that. Noah has to trust the hand of God to be the rudder here. And so God, God says in verse 17 why he's designed it this way, and it's to survive the flood, and that he's going to send and wipe out the whole world. And then in verse 18, we have this remarkable and very beautiful word, these beautiful words, but... I will establish or confirm my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. 
So Noah's, Noah's saved. Salvation is provided by God's gracious, redemptive covenant. This is God's doing. It's, it's astonishing grace. You see it in that, those adversatives. But I will do this. I will establish this covenant. And this, this promise, this, this bare word of God, it sustained Noah for over a century as he labored to build this thing. And, and, and so let me just say, the promise of God is, of God's word is sustenance for his people in all generations, including our own. It's this promise of his word. That's what sustains us. And our advantage on this side of the cross in the empty tomb is incomparable to what Noah had. We have all of the promises of God's word. And we have, and we know in Second Corinthians one twenty that more than that that they are all yes and amen in Christ. And so, how much more should we trust Him? And then, and then obey Him out of that place of trust, knowing that His ways are best. And in verse nineteen to twenty one, God tells Noah that two of every kind of animal they're going to be brought into the ark, and He tells him to bring all the necessary provisions to store on the ark. I'm having to summarize here some, but then verse twenty two, just notice it. Noah did this; he did all that God commanded him. This is a huge project. No trucks, no chainsaws, I don't think. I mean, they had technology. It wasn't modern technology, but they, they, they were brilliant people. In it. And it took decades and decades for them to complete this. 120 years. Just think about how many trees had to be cut down and hauled to that site. How that would have been. And, and, and massive trees. Think about the effort involved in milling those trees into usable Lumber, in the right dimensions. Think about all of this happening, facing incredible opposition and ridicule and threats and mocking day after day, decade after decade. And yet, and it's all downplayed though. <laughs> We're not given any of that. What it was like. It's, it's summarized in one verse. Noah did this. <laughs> That's it. He did this. He did all that God commanded him to do. What's happening? God... By God's grace, Noah's, he's living by faith. Hebrews eleven seven. I keep referencing it. Let me just read it. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, by building the ark, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He's believing God. His promises. Verse 1 of chapter 7. It's go time. He and his family are to prepare to enter the ark. In verses 2 to 3, he's to bring... uh, There's seven pairs of clean animals in. One pair each of unclean animals. Now those distinctions of clean and unclean animals in terms of progress revelation here. I mean, those, those don't come... They're not codified until the law is given to Moses. But I don't... We don't know. Maybe in his time of walking with God and... Maybe God revealed to him what a clean animal was, what an unclean, but somehow there's this distinction that's made. Then God says in verse 4 that after seven more days, as the animals are being brought into the ark, it's going to rain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, 40 is a significant number throughout Scripture, and you can no doubt think of some of those episodes. It's always a, a period of testing. It's a period of trial or judgment. So you have, you have Israel... Um, 
in the wilderness for 40 years. You have Jesus going and fasting in the wilderness for 40 days and he's tempted by uh, Satan out there. And so here, uh, so this, this is in for 40 days, 40 nights. And then God says very clearly what he's going to do. In that 40 days, 40 nights, he's going to blot out every living thing. That language, blot out, wipe it out. He's going to just drown the planet. And the, and the earth is going to revert again to this state of, you remember back to Genesis 1, tohu vabohu, formless and void. It's going back to that state when waters cover the earth and the earth was without form and void. So verse 11, we find Noah's 600 years old at this time. Now again, we, we talked about ages and how that differed in the pre-flood world and God preserved lives a lot longer than longer lifespans. But I think this was also a pre-ibuprofen age and all of that construction. And anyway, I, I can't imagine um, they probably had some better, actually. Um, so the animals boarded the ark. God is God is working like He did with Adam, and He's bringing the animals to Him. Remember, animals are coming. God brings the animals to Adam, and He names them here. God's bringing the animals in His pairs to Noah, and they're going on the ark. And then He and His family, verse seven, went into this God-designed ark to escape the waters of the flood. Again, Noah's he's not making stuff up as he goes along here. He's, he's evidencing God's grace in his life, walking by faith, following God's orders, doing what God says. But God is running the show here. He's doing everything that God commands him to do. And he's, by God's grace, he's obedient, faithful. But it's, it's God who's superintending this. God's providing the salvation, and Noah's laying hold of it by faith. One more thing I want you to see. Verse 16. We see that after everyone is in the ark, the text says, the Lord. Before he's using the word God, Elohim. Here he says, the Lord, Yahweh. This covenant God. Yahweh shut him in. God locked the door. This is the sovereign grace of God, shutting them in, protecting Noah, providing salvation, preserving the seed of the woman. And that's the, that's the big point that I'm trying to make is that in this third statement, this light of salvation, or excuse me, this provision of salvation, it's from God. It's from above. It's His, it's his idea, it's His design, it's His commands, it's, his, it's, it's Him who's enacting it. He's making it happen. So the light of salvation is inextinguishable. The, the need for salvation is absolutely total. The provision of salvation is from God. And then finally, fourth statement, the means of salvation is judgment. So judgment is at hand. The opportunity for the people in Noah's generation to turn to the Lord is gone. Verse 10, we see, after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to to kind of picture what this scene would have been like. This old man's been preaching day after day, um, decade after dec- decade, telling people of coming judgment of this flood that's coming, and he, people are mocking him and opposing him and threatening him and ridiculing him. And he's been building this massive thing, whatever it is, uh, you know, in his backyard or whatever, however, in this, in this region, and 120 years building this in preparation 
with his flood? <laughs> but then, then the rain starts to fall. And the waters begin to quickly rise. And every single person who ever knocked, mocked Noah or ridiculed his project, calling him and calling it crazy, this was the last day they mocked. And listen, just as the Lord shut Noah in the ark and he sealed the door himself, what is he also doing by that? He's shutting everybody else out. Salvation through judgment. And once that door was shut and you're on the outside, there's no getting in. No matter how much you might knock, no matter how loud you might scream, no matter how much you might have appealed, but I have children. In verses 11 to 16, we're given some of the mechanics of the flood. Remember in creation, the waters were separated, so the water, there were the waters above and the waters below. Here in this act of decreation, they come back together. And these subterranean waters, they explode and, and filling the earth from underneath. The, the heavens open up and these torrential rains begin to fall on the earth. One writer described this with heaven's hemorrhage, the rain of death. And the whole earth has turned into this watery chaos again. I mean, just thinking of the flooding, the images of flooding we're seeing in the Midwest right now, the Arkansas and the Mississippi River valleys and just the, the power of that kind of flooding and the devastation that it brings and the loss of property and life. Um, and we can think of even larger scale events like the tsunami in, in the Indian Ocean and 230,000 people wiped away. And we saw, we saw video footage of that and we, we saw the power and it just makes you feel so small and so helpless in, in, in the face of something like that, so horrific. But listen, any of those things. It's like a drop in a swimming pool compared to the devastation of this worldwide flood. Those are local, those are regional. This is universal, worldwide. And we'll see, the, 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 you see how it's described. The waters, they rose above the highest mountains. We read this a moment ago. Then there's no place to seek. There's no, what do we do when we get, when we're flooding? You're, you're going to higher ground. You're trying to find higher elevation. There's no place to go. Verse 17 to 24, we, we see the floodwaters, the text says, prevailing. They prevailed on the earth. Or it's the same word for triumph. They triumphed. Let's read verses 17 and following there again. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and they bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. And in verse 21, And all flesh died that, that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, and swarming creatures, and all mankind, everything on the dry land, and whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing. Verse 23, Only Noah was left and those with him on the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days what do you see there you see this conversion convergence excuse me convergence of salvation and judgment 
salvation through judgment. As the floods of judgment prevailed, what happened? The ark floated. The same waters of judgment are used to lift the ark to safety on the surface of that great deep. And so you have eight persons who are kept safe inside by God in the ark, and you have millions of bodies floating outside the ark. Every living thing, every person outside the ark perished. Everything. I mean, if you really just try and grasp the staggering scope of this catastrophe, I mean, the gruesome realities of, of worldwide death and destruction, you start to wonder, was this really necessary? You can see why people would have that kind of jaundiced view of the flood. Was God overreacting? Could there not have been another way? Listen, a holy God, a just God, He must intervene and judge sin and sinners. He must. You may not like that statement, but it's, it's true and it's biblical. Judgment for sin is necessary. But in God's power and in His wisdom, judgment becomes a means of salvation. So we see this reality throughout Scripture. It's not just here. A, a central theme of Scripture is this. is salvation through judgment. So Israel, you just think of their, their whole existence. They're saved They're saved through God's judgment on the Egyptians. And they're saved through God's judgment on the Canaanites. And they're saved through God's judgment on other nations. And we get to the New Testament and the greatest display of this is the cross. Salvation through judgment. God's righteous judgment shown on the cross. And that's the the means, the instrument of bringing our salvation. And it's going to be seen again in the future when Christ returns to judge His enemies and save all those who've called upon His name. So salvation through judgment. Well, as we wrap it up, let me just, Jesus Christ, think of it this, He became the man Adam chose not to be, and Christ became the man Noah could never be. And then because of this, Adam was born without sin, but he chose to sin. Noah was born into sin and could never escape it. Christ... Christ was different. He was the one that their lives are pointing to. God was faithful. He spared this one family so that it would lead to the birth of this one Savior, ultimate Savior, Jesus Christ. History is being pushed forward in this story to a better day, to a better salvation that's coming. And so there are, there are multiple texts in the New Testament that make this so very clear. I, I just want to draw our attention to one as we close. First Peter chapter three, verse twenty to twenty-two. Maybe because we were in First and Second Peter recently, but First uh, Peter chapter three, Peter writes in verse twenty. Of, he's writing of God's patience that the text says waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And this is the connection he makes. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now you can 
I know there's some interpretive issues in that text and explaining what Peter means. You can go back and listen to sermons or you can look that up on your own. But he's obviously he's not saying that water baptism um, itself has saving power. Like the, the water itself has power to regenerate us or justify us or anything like that. The water baptism is a sign and it's a sign that's pointing to salvation. And so in Peter's understanding here though, it's a sign that points to judgment as well. And so it points to judgment in, in connection to the judgment that Jesus faced for us. And he was resurrected out of. That's what he's saying here. So here's the picture. The world was submerged in water in, in judgment. And the ark, uh, the ark of safety that carries Noah uh, and his family through that judgment. And that's the, that's, that's the image that Peter's using here. And then he, so he connects it to Christ and he says Christ is submerged to the waves and the billows of God's furious wrath. And judgment on the cross. But through it, he carries us through the waters of judgment so that being united with him in his resurrection, we are saved from judgment. That's the image. And so baptism is a symbolic picture that shows us being submerged and buried with Christ so that his judgment counts as ours. He was judged in our place, bored all, and then, he was ra- and then we are raised with Christ in newness of life, and his resurrection guarantees ours. That's what we see in baptism. Someone's identifying with Christ who rescued us from judgment by being judged in our place on the cross. Christ is the ark. Christ is the rescuer. Christ is the provision. Christ is the one who redeems us by enduring judgment for us. Salvation through judgment. That's how we've been saved, brothers and sisters. We've been saved through judgment. Christ being judged in our place. And we're united with him. There's, there's many hymns that, that actually capture this language. I, I'm just going to, I have a few down, but I'm just going to, I'm going to refer to one and I, and I want us to sing it uh, as the team comes up in just a moment. But the familiar hymn, The Solid Rock, um, some of the words, his oath, his covenant, his blood, Support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So Christ, Christ is the one who saves us from the flood of judgment, of wrath. He rescues us from it. His oath, His covenant, His blood is His word of promise. It's Christ who is the rescuer. And so the story of the flood, it's, the, it's again, it's a story of salvation through judgment. It's a story of God's rescue from wrath and His project of this new creation after judgment. And we're going to see that. And our only hope is if we find rescue in Jesus Christ. That's it. Christ is the ark of safety. It's in Him that we are safe in His righteousness. And so Noah, how was he made right with God? Hebrews tells us it was by believing God's promise. And you can be made right with God today by trusting in God's promise in Jesus Christ that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you trusted Him? Have you trusted Him? Have you believed in Christ? Have you fled to Him for refuge? Have you hidden your life in the ark of Christ as your only hope of of making it through the judgment to come. Let's pray. I pray for any, Lord, this morning who have not found rescue 
from judgment through Christ who bore their judgment in their place, that they would flee not to their own works, but they would flee to the work of Jesus Christ in all of its sufficiency, His death and resurrection on our behalf. And, and for us who are in Christ, Father, may we delight and, and celebrate the, the goodness of what You revealed and the salvation that is ours through, through judgment and, and being fulfilled ultimately in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.